today we're looking at Matthew uh, chapter 19, verses 13 through the end of the chapter, verse 30. I don't know if you were like me growing up, uh, I enjoyed singing songs, and in my family we sang songs at church, Sunday school. Some of my favorite songs as a child, well, one of my favorite songs was Jesus Loves Me. You know, hopefully you know how that goes. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Another one I loved singing was, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Amen, you know that one, that's good. Well, you know what? I love those songs, and I still sing them to my children. It's amazing how we pass them on. Why, why, do we, why did I love those? And if you love them, why do you love them? Well, it, for one thing, it has great truth, doesn't it? Great truth. The, those lovely sentiments are based on clear biblical truth. And, and one of the things we're going to see in our text today here is that Jesus truly does love little children. Children here become a model, if you will, for discipleship and are an essential part of the kingdom community. Remember, we've been talking about community now for a couple chapters. We've been talking about the kingdom, really, throughout the uh, whole book of Matthew. And, and Jesus is introduced to some children here. And, and I, think, I think the theme, or, or something we need to walk away with, is this. That children are God's special gift to the community. And children are to be embraced, And even more than that, they're the very embodiment of the kingdom. Uh, Churches should love children. Families should love children. Uh, We should, should, uh, you know, invest in children. The the stats show that uh, the older you get each decade of your life, the, the harder it gets to become a Christian, if you will. That's what the stats show. So those of you who have children, by all means, pour your life into them while they're young. Uh, if you're able to teach to them, uh, what a blessing that is. God's given you a great responsibility to, to preach, teach God's word to them. It's an important issue. And, and, of course, Jesus shows us that here in Matthew 19. Starting, Let's look at verse uh, 13. We see Jesus' invitation in verse 13. The Bible says, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. So in verse 13, you see Jesus' invitation. Now, you need to understand something about Jesus' time. In in their religion of Judaism, children were often brought to teachers and rabbis for a blessing. And here we have, well, I'm assuming that are the parents, bringing 
children to Jesus for, for him to lay his hands on them and to bless them and, and pray for them. So this is the normal form for a, a blessing in the ancient world. Although this event is rather interesting, uh, it, 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 it shows us some things here about Jesus. Uh, two facts I just want to point out to you about Jesus. This event shows, number one, that Jesus' authority, he has authority. He is the one who determines human destiny here. He is the one who determines human destiny. He has all authority. In fact, we're going to see that in the very last chapter of Matthew, aren't we? All authority over heaven and earth belongs to Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the long-awaited Messiah. But number two, we see Jesus' mercy and compassion for those who need his help. Children are, are helpless for the most part. They need his help. And, 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 and Jesus is, again, showing this reality, this truth, that he is merciful even to people who, you know, sometimes were considered outcast or helpless. He shows great compassion to these children. That's the way Jesus is. And by the way, when you grow up, he's still the same. Yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus is the same. Why did the disciples rebuke the children and parents? If, if Jesus loves them and he, he's inviting them to come, why are they rebuking the, these people? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us exactly. Uh, I have a feeling it has something to do with the, the fact maybe these disciples are a bit upset. Uh, you know, their, their trip to Jerusalem has been interrupted by uh, something that to them they considered trivial, a trivial reason. Remember, uh, we, we saw earlier in Matthew 19 that Jesus is making his way from Galilee. And in, verse, in, in chapter 20, we're going to see him start heading toward Jerusalem. So for about a six-month period of time, he's, he's, he's traveling down from Galilee in the north down to the southern uh, part there, eventually making his way to Jerusalem. And I'm assuming the disciples are thinking, you know, hey, we're, we're, we've been waiting a long time for this Messiah, for Jesus to to build his kingdom, so to speak, and they want to be a part of that. And, and, and any interruption like this is just a, a nuisance. So in verse 14, Jesus responds to their bad attitude. So the clear emphasis here is on let come. Let come, he says. Do not hinder. Those are commands. Let come and do not hinder. The clearly powerful emphasis there. Jesus could hardly be more firm in his resolve to welcome children into his presence. He wanted to bless them. The disciples found these children to be a nuisance, though. But Jesus clearly loves these children. Now, did you notice Jesus' amazing statement there at the end of verse 14? The end of verse 14, he, he says, To such belongs, what? The kingdom of heaven. He's talking about heaven, eternal life, if you will. To such as these children belongs heaven. So Jesus says that the, the children are recipients of the kingdom blessings. Well, that was shocking for many people at Jesus' day. So how do children model kingdom realities? In other words, I guess I'm, I'm asking this. Why would Jesus use children as models for us? and for the disciples, and anybody else who, who may have been there. 
Well, number one, children are helpless. <laughs> children are helpless. It's a great model and a great illustration for us. We as well are helpless. We cannot enter the kingdom of heaven on our own. It's impossible. But children are also vulnerable, aren't they? Very, very vulnerable. We, we as, as parents who have children or have had children, we know that we 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 gotta we gotta look after them. They you know particularly in those first you know ten years of their life, they they can hardly do anything on their own. You gotta feed them, and change them, put them to bed, get them up, uh, you know, wash them, and bathe them, and, and and do everything for them. They're very very vulnerable. It would be easy for someone to take them to to do bad things to them or or even kill them. But they're also totally dependent on the one who's looking after them. Children are totally dependent. And, and for those reasons, and, and I'm sure we could come up with some others, Jesus is using them as, as the model here of, of what, what is, how can you enter the kingdom, if you will? Well, you've you got to come as a child. You've got to come as a child, recognizing, hey, I am helpless. I mean, that's the first beatitude Jesus mentions. You, you come empty-handed before him, poor in spirit, humble as a child. You've got to recognize you're vulnerable, you, and, and you're totally dependent upon Jesus Christ to save you. For those reasons and more, Jesus uses them as a model. In verse 15, Jesus blesses them. And Jesus had a special place in his heart for uh, these kind of people. He, in, in his kingdom, there, he had a place for the downtrodden, for the outcasts, for the foreigners, for the aliens, for ooh, Gentiles. Sinners and tax collectors, oh, that's the worst kind of all. And, and so Jesus is now showing us again, he even has a place for children. In Roman society, boy, they, they didn't look very nice at children for the most part. In fact, I was even, I was even reading of one Roman man who told his wife that, that if she had a girl, kill it. Get rid of it, I don't want it. That, that, was, that was very typical. They would throw him in the river or do whatever they wanted, uh, especially if it was a girl. Didn't treat them very well. Let me give you an illustration. Some years ago, there was a young Hindu man who was from the southern part of India who converted to Christ. He became a Christian, and he received a call to reach, and, and the call was from God, he, he, God laid it upon his heart, if you will, to go up to the northern part of India and reach the northern part of India for Christ. So he went to the United States to attend seminary. He returned to India after seminary, and he founded a Bible college that was dedicated solely to training young men, young men for ministry, uh, those who were called to ministry. He wanted them to not have to go to some other country to train, but they could train right there in India. And after graduation, students uh, are helped by that, that school for a period of about six months in, in establishing a local church somewhere in, in a various city throughout India. However, he found that one of their most effective means of winning converts was the children's home that they had established. Orphaned and abandoned children are taken to their home. And while they're there, of course, they're fed, they're clothed, they're sheltered, and they're loved. They attend the public schools, but they're also given a concentrated study in God's Word. To him, that was one of the most important things, if not the most important thing. And 
He found that although adult Hindus and Muslims are extremely difficult to evangelize, uh, those young children are open to the gospel. And, and many of them would confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. A large percentage of the boys from that home go on to attend the Bible college and become effective evangelists and pastors. And so because they were reached with the gospel at that early age, they were open and responsive to the claims of Christ. It's a great story. It's one that should be replicated throughout the world. Pastor MacArthur gives us five key words I want to share with you. I found these helpful. Five key words that can prove helpful in giving guidance to parents and and anybody who might be a, a Christian worker who's leading children to Christ. So remember these five key words. Number one, the word is remember. So if you, if you work with children or have children, uh, remember these words. And the first one is remember. We should remember that every child is created by God. And in that sense of the word, they belong to Him because He is their Creator. In fact, Psalm 127 says that all children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Therefore, it's, it's God's plan. And it's His desire that every child be returned to Him for His use because He made them. They're His. Everything belongs to Him, including the children. So we need to remember. Number two, teach. The second key word is teach. Christian parents and, and, and Christian workers need to recognize, hey, you've got a high calling. You have a high calling of bringing up children, as Ephesians 6 says, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Not just bring them up. Not just teach them you know, the alphabet or you know, how to ride a bike or whatever. No, you teach them and instruct them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That is your high calling. The third key word is model. Model. Children need godly examples. Not only do they need someone to teach them, but they need someone to model what's being taught. You ever heard that saying, you know, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. <laughs> Boy, don't, don't say that too fast and too many times. It's hard to say, isn't it? But, but isn't that so true? Uh, I mean, my own children are, are one of my greatest sources of sanctification in my life. You know, they're, they're, they're continually pointing out my sin and pointing me to God. Um, you know, <clears throat> but when you point, just remind you, you've got three that point back. Anyway, and, and, and of course, Jesus also said, remember, you know, if you, you try to take that tree, you know, or a speck out of somebody else's eye, remember, you take out the tree out of your own eye first. But, uh, children are a blessing in that way. They just often say it the way it is. You know, hey, Daddy, you know, you, you, know, you need to practice what you preach. You know, you, you said this, whether it's in our own family devotions or here at church. It's very, it's very humbling, and, and, and I must confess they're often right. Uh, my sanctification process is going way too slow as I'm being set apart from my sin unto God, and, and they help. And, and children need godly examples, and I need, I need to help as I... As I try to teach, I also need to model, and so do you. We have, unfortunately, some bad examples of this in the Bible. 
Uh, one that comes to mind is King David, who failed to be a godly example to his own sons. And if you look at the fruit, uh, of the result of his parenting, if you will, it, it's pretty clear, isn't it? Uh, Absalom, for example, one of David's sons, was so wicked that he sought to kill his father and, and, and take the throne from him. Another one of David's sons, of course, was Solomon. And, and he's, he's famous for many things, but one of the infamous things, if you will, is he had a lot of wives and concubines. And as a result of that, his, uh, um, Satan used that to divert his attention and his heart away from the one true God. So there's a classic example of, unfortunately, of uh, someone who wasn't the best of parents. So we need to model. Number four, we need to love. We need to love. In order to have a godly influence on children, parents need to uh, come to their children and, shall we say, weep sometimes with their children? Come alongside them and unselfishly serve them? We need to hurt with our children? We need to show them genuine affection? Oh, that's, that's hard to do, isn't it, sometimes? We, we need to sacrifice for them. Uh, parents got to be selfless. It's so easy for us to be selfish. We've got to be selfless. We've got to come alongside them. Not, not just show, show uh, you know, try to show them that you care. You've got to really mean it. Often children can tell when it's genuine or not. But we need to trust. Not in our children. But, but after parents have done everything humanly possible to raise their children in the way of the Lord, what do you do? Then you, you put it in, it's, it's in God's hands all along, really. But we've got to trust in the Lord, not lean on our own understanding. In all our ways, acknowledge Him, and then he, he'll, he'll direct our paths. So we've got to trust God to make our efforts fruitful in children's lives. And, and of course, only the Holy Spirit can reach into the human heart anyway. So it's, it's His work, not ours. Well, we come to another passage here in Matthew chapter 19. And, and this passage, if you will, is the reverse of becoming like a child. And the reason I'm combining these two is because it, it's, 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 it's a great contrast in a way. Because when Jesus looks at these children, He says, hey, it's... It's, it's these kind of people who belong in the kingdom. These are the ones who get to heaven, if you will. But this next passage is the reverse of that, the contrast. But at the same time, it tells us how to become like a child. It turns to a major barrier against doing so, which in this case is the riches of this world. In this text, Jesus encounters a rich man. He has this conversation with him about eternal life. In the end, the rich man embodies this anti-kingdom perspective, and he ends up choosing his own wealth over following Christ, and he walks away sad. So the theme here is this, that everyone must choose between God and idols. Everyone must choose between God and idols. And that choice, by the way, is going to determine whether your reward is earthly and perishable, or your choice will determine if your reward is heavenly and eternal. Which is it, my friend? Which will your reward be? Earthly and perishable, or heavenly and eternal? Well, let's look at this encounter with the rich 
young ruler. Now, Matthew doesn't use the word ruler. Uh, one of the other Gospels calls him a ruler. Uh, so he's, he's high up, if you will, in the, in the ranks of Judaism. And as a result of that, he's also rich and he's young. And if you're, if you're a ruler, that makes you a powerful man. So we've got a powerful, young, rich man here coming to Jesus. And, and look, what, uh, look what goes on in this encounter here, starting in verse 16. Verse 16, And behold, a man came up to him, that's Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Notice in verse 16, the first question this young, rich ruler asked, how to gain eternal life. How do I gain eternal life? Is that an important question or what? Is there any greater question than that? How do I gain eternal life? By the way, the the term eternal life, great question. And, And by the way, I'll also mention he's coming to the perfect person to ask this question of, isn't he? There is no greater person on planet earth that he could have asked than Jesus Christ. The one who is the life himself, as John 14, 6 says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he comes to life himself and asks him, how can I have this life? Eternal life always refers primarily to quality rather than quantity, by the way. We, we often think of it as, as uh, quantity. I mean, after all, it says eternal life, right? And, and, and there is a sense that eternal life does carry the idea of being everlasting it is an everlasting reality, not like the Energizer batter, or batteries, you know, the Energizer bunny. You know, it, it has life for a while, but even, even the Energizer battery dies at some point, right? And you've got to put more batteries in it. Whereas everlasting life, it, it's, it's eternal. It, it, it keeps going. So there is an aspect of quantity, but it's not just simply referring to an unending existence. Even the ancient pagans knew that unending existence would not be desirable if the quality of that life was not desirable. I mean, just think about it in your own life. I mean, as I'm getting older now, my body just keeps getting more and more decrepit and have, having more and more problems. And I'm thinking, man, now that I'm in my 40s, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, whew, I really don't want to live to be 80. <laughs> I don't want to live to be 80. If I'm going to just keep getting worse, but you know, if, if that's what God wants me to do, then so be it. But that's the way, that, that's the way we are. And the ancient pagans knew it. unending existence without quality was not something to be desired. In fact, according to Greek mythology, 
there was someone named Aurora, who was the goddess of the dawn. She fell in love with a young mortal named Tenothis. And when Zeus offered to provide anything she wished for her human lover, she asked that he might never die. The wish was granted, but because she had not asked that Tenothis remain forever young, he continued to grow older and older and more and more decrepit. So instead of being blessed, he was cursed to perpetual degeneration. So I ask you, what is then eternal life? What is this rich young ruler coming to Jesus to ask for? How can I get that? I like uh, MacArthur, what, his definition. He says that, quote, Eternal life is first of all a quality of existence. The divinely endowed ability to be alive to God and the things of God. Well, I'll give you the flip side of that. At the moment, none of us, none of us have that ability be, to be totally alive to God and, and the things of God. We, at this moment, we don't have that full ability. God has to glorify our bodies where, where we can enjoy His presence without being consumed. One day He's going to do that. We will have quality as well as quantity of life. By the way, here, if you look at this, uh, someone might say, Hey, wait a minute. Is Jesus teaching some kind of a works righteousness here? Is he saying that you can get to heaven by keeping the commandments? He does talk about that here, doesn't he? Uh, well, <clears throat> if you look at Scripture, Scripture is pretty clear that you don't get to heaven by your works. He's not telling us that we can find eternal life by keeping the commandments. That's not the point. Jesus is trying to get this rich man to realize that he's lost. He thinks he's good. He doesn't think, he, he doesn't think he, that, that he's unsaved. He thinks he's on his way to the kingdom, if you will. And so Jesus is using the law here to show him his sin. That's why Jesus is using the law. And, and the law is helpful in this regard because it makes us conscious of our sin and in the process drives us to the one who has kept the law in all points. Jesus fulfilled the law. By the way, I, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, there, there's a way of witnessing to people that I, I particularly enjoy and find helpful. And uh, if you've heard of, uh, there, there's a, a New Zealander who lives in the States now by the name of Ray Comfort, and he often uses the law, and I, I particularly like his way of witnessing, and if you're not familiar with that, you can go online and, and uh, find some videos, the way of the master, you'll find those. They're quite helpful. And, and so what you do is you, you can walk up to any unbeliever, or, or someone who thinks, who thinks they're a believer like this, this person here, and you use the law to smash their self-righteousness. Did you notice Jesus uses uh, particularly the last part of the, the Ten Commandments, the ones that apply to people? It shows you how to love people, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, he, he uses that particular part. And so you, you can walk up to anybody, and, 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 and I, I like the way Ray often starts. He he often uses the, the, the one about lying, first of all. You just walk up to somebody, and you can say, hey, you, you ever told a lie? And, and what you want to do is you want to get them to admit, yes, hey, I've told a lie. And uh, a lot of times people might make excuses. 
that you can say, hey, you ever told a lie? Hopefully they'll say yes. And what does that make you, by the way, if, if you lie? What you want to do is you want to get them to admit that then I'm a liar. All right? I'm a liar. All right, well, then you can move on to another part of the law, and you can say, okay, uh, hey, have you ever stolen anything? E- even something little, I don't know, some money from your parents or uh, a highlighter from your boss or something, or, you know, some, some food from a dairy or something. Anything at all? Hopefully most people will say, yes, I have stolen. What does that make you? A thief. Okay. Uh, the, one, the one I love using on guys, because every, every male on planet Earth is an adulterer at heart. And so you can, you can walk up and say, hey, have you ever, you ever looked at a woman and lusted after her in your heart, in your mind? Hopefully the guy will admit yes. What does that make you? It makes you an adulterer at heart. All right, so you, you, you go through these various commandments here, and, and, and of course, ten, number 10, Jesus gets to, and that, that's the one that gets him. Number 10, hey, have you ever coveted anything? Has there ever been anything that somebody else owns that you want real bad and, and wish you could have? Well, that's covetousness. Jesus talks about that one here with this man. And so you use the law as you're evangelizing and witnessing to people. Jesus did it. It, it, it smashes our self-righteousness, and that's one of the greatest problems we have is we, we think we're okay. We think that somehow, you know, we, we got this idea that, that God has these huge, giant scales and He's going to put my bad works on this side and my good works on this side of the scales. And, and, we, and most people think, well, you know, hey, I'm hope, I, I hope I go to heaven because, you know, the good works are going to go down and outweigh my bad works. A lot of people think that way. And the reality is it's just not the case. Just not the case. The Bible says you, if, you, if you break the law at one point, you've, you've broken the whole thing. So use the law in your witnessing to people. It will smash their self-righteousness. It shows that they are sinners. It shows the reality of Romans 3 that we are all sinners. None are righteous. No, not one. But as you do that, remember, when someone comes, when someone comes to the point where they recognize they're lost... Show them the solution. Come to Christ. Point them to Christ, the one who is the life. Christ kept the law, which you could never do. And if you put your trust, your faith, your belief in Him, and in Him alone, you may have eternal life. So my friends, use the law in your witnessing. Well, this young man here, this rich young man, uses a second question. He basically asks, hey, well, which commandments must be kept? Which commandments do I need to keep? Good question. Uh, again, this guy, he, he's, he's missed the boat, really. He's, he's, he's looking for some works-based righteousness. You know, what can I do to have eternal life? I need to do something. I want to, you know, I've done all these things. Is there something I'm missing? He wants to go to heaven. He, he's, he wants to make sure he's got all of his boxes ticked, so to speak. Well, in verses 18 and 19, there's a, th- a third question. Hey, what, what do I lack? What do I lack? Am I missing something here? <laughs> and so he says, hey, which ones? And, of course, Jesus goes through the second part of the Decalogue, the, the, the Ten Commandments there, showing that we are all lost. 
Well, Jesus' response is, as he goes through these, these various uh, commandments here, he comes to commandment number 10. Because the guy at this point is saying, hey, I've done all that. Is there anything else? And so we come to verse 20 and 21, and so Jesus' response is, to show that the man's actually covetous, he says, sell all your possessions and give them to the poor and come and follow me. Well, that shows that he was covetousness because he walks away grieved. And so the conclusion of the matter in verse 22 is that the rich man departs and he is unwilling to surrender his possessions because he loves himself more than he loves God. It shows the idolatry in his heart that he is covetous. And by the way, it didn't need to end this way. All right? There's, there's actually, I'll, I'll use an example in the Bible of someone who is a rich man who came to Christ when Christ called him as he was up in this tree. Remember Zacchaeus? In Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus is up in the tree. He wanted to see Jesus. He's a short guy, apparently. You know, he can't see around the crowd for whatever. There's so many people there. He wanted to see Jesus. And Zacchaeus was a very wealthy man, and when Jesus called him, he, he received Jesus gladly, the Bible says. And, and what did he do as a result of that? What he did actually shows that his heart was transformed. He, he spontaneously, he volunteered to do essentially what Jesus commanded the rich man to do here. Zacchaeus said, Hey, half of my possessions I'm going to give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, hey, I'm going to give back four times as much. That's what he said. And then Jesus told him, today salvation has come to this house. So Zacchaeus was not saved, by the way, because of you know, some newfound generosity in his life. He wasn't saved by giving money to the poor. He wasn't saved by his charity. No, rather his generosity shows that he truly was saved. His heart was transformed by Christ. In verses 23 to 26, we see Jesus teaching on entering the kingdom of heaven after this rich young ruler walks away from Jesus and says, hey, I'm going to choose myself over Jesus. Jesus uses his opportunity to teach of how can someone enter the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jesus starts off here in verse 23, giving a very difficult... It's an illustration. Some people have a hard time understanding this. But the point of this illustration of using this camel and the needles to show the difficulty of being able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've given you a little picture here, which, of course, is not to scale. <laughs> uh, and, and Jesus is using a camel because that's, that's the biggest animal in the land of Israel. And then he purposely, that's the biggest, well, then he purposely picks the smallest hole 
that was known to an Israeli at that time, which was little eye on a needle. You know, you ladies or anybody else ever sewed anything? You notice you have to put... It's hard to get that thread through that little hole, the eye of that needle, isn't it? Even, even a little piece of thread has a hard time going through it. And Jesus is saying, that's how difficult it is for a wealthy person who loves themselves more than God to enter into the kingdom. Imagine trying to push or squeeze or pull a, a camel through that little hole. It just it isn't going to happen, is it? It's not going to happen. That's absurd to even think about, isn't it? And that's the point. It's difficult. The wealthy cannot buy their way into the kingdom. In fact, that, that particular attitude, if you, if you think you can earn your way somehow into the kingdom, actually makes it impossible for that person to come to God. It makes it impossible. If, if, if you think, anyone thinks they can do it on their own, without Jesus Christ, it's impossible. And so, as a result of, of Jesus' teaching here, the disciples asked, well, hey, can anyone be saved? Can anyone be saved? You have to understand the thinking of, of Jesus' day because the disciples are showing this, this thinking that they had with, that, that a rich person, someone who is wealthy, shows that they were blessed of God. They had God's special blessing on them. And, and, and that their riches, their possessions, their lands, their houses, whatever they had, showed that, that God loved them and God was richly blessing them. And, and of course, you know, they thought those, if anybody's going to get into the kingdom, it's those people. That was the way they thought. And so they're looking at this young, rich ruler, walk away from Jesus, and they're thinking, okay, Jesus is saying that it's difficult for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom. And they're thinking, wait a minute, we're not wealthy. <laughs> Most people aren't wealthy. Do we have any hope at all of entering into the kingdom of heaven? Can anyone be saved? Well, Jesus responds in verse 26, and he says that salvation is possible, but this salvation is only possible with God. Did you notice that in verse 26? Jesus looked at them and he said, with man this is impossible. In other words, you can't save yourself. It's impossible for you to save yourself, but... With God, all things are possible. God saves. So that's Jesus' response in verse 26. And then we come to verse 27, and we see Jesus teaching on rewards. What a, oh, this is awesome. This is precious truth here. Let's, let's just pickle ourselves in this for a few moments, okay? Bathe ourselves in Jesus' wonderful teaching on rewards here. Look at verse 27. In verse 27, Peter speaks up for the whole group, as he often does. And verse 27 says, Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And anyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first 
will be last and the last first. So again, in verse 27, Peter, as he speaks, often does for the whole group, he asks this question. Basically, here, here in my own words is this question. Okay, Jesus, what's in it for us? What's in it for us? You, you, ever, you ever ask Jesus that question? You ever feel like you're, you're kind of like a martyr? <laughs> you know, you, 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 you might feel like, hey, I've put it all on the line for Jesus and heaven. I, you, you might feel like, hey, I've given up a lot for him. What's in it for me? It, it, am I getting anything out of this? Am I getting any reward at all? Well, Jesus responds in verse 28 and 29 with some precious, precious, glorious, awesome truths that are so encouraging. I want to give you several reasons to be encouraged to serve God with your life. You're saying, hey, well, what's in this for me? You know, if I'm going to give up all of this stuff of, of life, whether it's family or my possessions, whatever it might be, what's in it for me? Well, look what Jesus says. Number one, my friend, you have great blessings. You have great blessings if you give up everything for Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, are you feeling like the rich man? You ever feel like the rich man here? Do you feel that the cost of following Jesus Christ is too high? You ever felt that way? I have at times. It's, it really is a bad attitude, and it really comes down to unbelief. It's, it's not believing what Jesus says here. Jesus tells us that the blessings in his service are greater than the blessings we could have in this life apart from Christ. So you might be thinking, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those, the proverbial thing is your glass half full, or is your glass half empty? Which is it? <laughs> right? What's your perspective on life? Is your glass half full or half empty? Yeah, some people just have this, this constant negative outlook on life. You know, all they can think about is the negative instead of the positive. Right? But Jesus, is, he wants us to focus on the positive, not focus on the things you give up in this life. Instead, let's focus on the positive, the things you gain, which, of course, are great blessings, far greater than anything you'd ever give up in this life. Did you notice some of the things he mentions, by the way? What did Jesus say? Verse 29 Jesus talks about some of these things that would have been extremely precious. The, the greatest thing for the average Jew, someone who living living in the, in the Holy Land there, what, what would be precious to them? Houses. Notice he starts with our possessions here. Starts with our possessions. A house is a precious thing, isn't it? How horrible it would be to not have a place of, of shelter and, and warmth, of, place to live to call your own so to speak and then he moves on to to family of course family is precious to most people people like your brothers and your sisters your father your mother your children but then jesus comes back again to your possessions he mentions lands land was very precious to people it's, it would be where they would make a living they, they could grow their crops, their fruit, the grain, whatever. And, uh, of course, you know, someone who was wealthy would have more than enough. They would be able to give employment to other people and, and 
not only provide for their own family, they, they can become wealthy off that land. And Jesus says, these are precious things, but if you give that up for me, notice he says, my namesake, he's talking about himself. If you give that up for Christ's sake, then you're going to be greatly blessed. Notice the word hundredfold. <laughs> hundredfold. That's far greater than what Job got. Job only got seven. Hundredfold. Hundredfold. I was just thinking, even when I was at the conference, this, this, the Bible conference this weekend, wherever I travel around the world, what a blessing it is. Because, I mean, my wife and I, we've, we've given up family. We've given up house, land, country, family, our, our mothers and our fathers and our, and our uh, you know, nieces and our nephews. I haven't even seen some of my nieces and nephews. I haven't seen my brother in eight years. Uh, we, when we came to New Zealand, we recognized that's just, Christ is more important. We're going to give that up. That's not as important as Christ. And so it's a blessing as, as wherever I go throughout the world, I, I recognize this wonderful, great blessing that Jesus is talking about here. I have so many more brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. There's that instant relationship and fellowship. You may not even be able to speak their language. But you can look another Christian in the eye and there's, there's an immediate connection that is there's deeper and richer and better than blood. You know what I'm talking about? You ever experienced that? You go to another country, you go to somewhere else. I mean, I went up to Auckland, and you know, I got there's 300, 400 brothers and sisters. It's just, it's, it's awesome. I, I can ring up almost anywhere in New Zealand, and sometimes even other places in the world, and, and someone will put me up for free. It's a wonderful blessing to have that hundredfold blessing. And, it's, and by the way, that's not meant to be an exact number. The point being is. We are greatly blessed, far more than you give up. If you give up one mother, one father, maybe a couple siblings in a house, oh, it gets far better, far better. I mean, just, just think about it, because one of the things Jesus mentions here is, hey, anyone who has left houses, I mean, think about that. What's Jesus Christ doing for believers right now in John 14? Read John 14, verses 1 through 3. Jesus says, he is preparing a home for believers. The creator of the universe is making you a home. And that's going to be far greater than anything you could ever have on earth right now. now you might give up family for Jesus' sake, but you gain far more. Far more. Number two. Let me give you a second reason to be encouraged to serve God is because you have secure blessings. You have secure blessings. If you put Christ first in everything, you can be sure that whatever possessions that God wants you to have are going to be safe. They're going to be safe. Even here in this life. All right, Everything you have doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God anyway. And if God wants some thief to come in and steal his stuff, then so be it but it's safe until he wants it stolen or destroyed or rusting or whatever. A moth eat it. It's secure blessing, but it's eternal blessings. We have eternal blessings. That's the third reason to be encouraged to serve God. 
All believers in Jesus Christ will have, the, the Bible says we will have blessings now. One of the other gospels says, uh, in, it's kind of the companion passage here, it says, even in this life, you and I as believers have blessings. So yes, we have them not only in the future, but we have them now. We, we can experience this. We have blessings in the millennial kingdom. We have blessings throughout all of eternity. We have them now and in the life to come. So to be poor for the sake of Christ is to be rich indeed. I like what the missionary Jim Elliott wrote uh, shortly before he was speared to death by the Aka Indians back in the, uh, in, in, when he was in Ecuador in the 1950s. So shortly before his martyrdom, he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He couldn't keep his life. Nobody can keep their life. Life is a vapor. You don't, nothing you can do to secure your life. So give it up. Give it to the one who is in control, who is sovereign over your life. So we have eternal blessings. But number four, these blessings themselves are blessed. The blessings promised by Jesus are themselves blessed by God. That's what Scripture is saying here. So His favor actually rests on them. His divine power makes them effective in assisting other people. So He can, God takes our, our pathetic little possessions, if you will, our offerings that we put in the offering box or our time we invest in people and, and blesses them. It's not just that we are blessed. Others are actually blessed by them through us. And by the way, remember, Acts says Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. If you've ever had that encouraging blessing of giving to other people, whether it's your time, money, possession, or, uh, or some ability or whatever that might be, it, 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 a true, it is true what Jesus says. And so you get the blessing of blessing somebody else, and in the process, God's going to reward you, and he's going to assist and enable by his grace to allow that blessing to work and minister in someone's life. So to be blessed in this way is to be blessed twice, because the one receiving the gift, the gift is blessed along with the giver of the gift. So hallelujah to this, that these promises are truly great, aren't they? What wonderful blessings. And, and we need to be encouraged by this to serve God because of what Jesus says. They are an encouragement to trust Him. They're an encouragement to serve Him. However, they come with a warning. It comes with a warning here in verse 30. Uh, some have called this the great reversal in verse 30 because you know, some people think, hey, you know, I, I want to be first. To be first means to be blessed. To be wealthy means to be blessed of God. That's what they were thinking. But look what Jesus says in verse 30. Uh, but, there's that contrast word, but many who are first will be last in the last first. This is the great reversal. This is, it's, it's a paradox, isn't it? Wait a minute, you've got to scratch your head sometimes what Jesus says. You, you mean, I, I thought it was best to be in the front of the line, so to speak. I thought it was, it was I, the one blessed was to be the one who was wealthy. Uh, you know, I thought that's the way it was. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, like, those, uh, like the wealthy man here, 
like this kind of a person, the, the rich man, the, the person who worships themselves, Jesus is saying, hey, that kind of a person is going to suffer great loss. That person thought he was first because he was young, he was rich, and he was a ruler. But that, that guy suffered eternal loss. He thought he was first, but Jesus says he's last. Like the disciples who surrender everything, Jesus says, if you think you're at the end of the line, so to speak, if you think you're last, Jesus says, you're actually first. A follower of Christ must be willing to take the lowly place. A follower of Christ must be willing to humble themselves, must be willing to have the attitude of the child that Jesus was talking about in this previous passage. That's how you are to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You humble yourself. You come to God empty-handed, recognizing you, you have absolutely nothing to offer Him except your sin. Let's think of some application for a few moments. Number one, my friend, you must rid yourself of dependence on wealth. I know what some of you are thinking. <laughs> I, I feel this way sometimes myself. Wait a minute. Uh, I'm not wealthy, so this doesn't apply to me. Wrong, wrong. Compare yourself, you're, you're, you're comparing yourself to the wrong people, right? You don't compare yourself to, you know, the, the, the president of Microsoft or the president of Apple. You know, that wrong people to compare yourself to, right? You compare yourself to the whole world. The reality is we in the Western world are wealthy. According to world standards, we're all wealthy. If you own a house or you live in a house, if you have a car, you're wealthy, Right? That makes you wealthy, according to world standard. And so we need to realize we, we all have this dependency on our wealth. And so we need to make this a matter of prayer, really. That God would rid ourselves of this dependence on things in ourselves, but that we would be dependent on Him. That we would trust in Him and in Him alone. And so it's something we need to pray about constantly, because this is one of these battles that you and I are going to constantly face particularly those of us living in, in materialistic, wealthy countries like New Zealand. Number two, you must invest your wealth in God's kingdom. Remember back in chapter 6, Jesus is not against wealth, by the way. All right? Sometimes people think, oh, Jesus hates wealth. No, he didn't. <laughs> he just said, don't be a fool with what he gives you. Use it wisely. Store it up in the right place. You remember Matthew 6, verse 20? Jesus commands us to store up for ourselves treasures, not on earth, but in heaven. So it reminds me of the, uh, if you've ever read Randy Elkhorn's book, The Treasure Principle. I love, I love the treasure principle. If you've never heard it, let me share it with you. Uh, he, he says in The Treasure Principle that you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You cannot take your wealth with you, but you can send it on ahead. Somebody has jokingly said, you never see a hearse pulling a trailer, right? You don't see, you don't see people, you know, well, maybe the pharaohs do, but what, what happened to all the pharaohs? Tomb robbers come in and steal their stuff, right? They, they don't get to take it with them. But you can send it on ahead. Jesus tells us, store up treasure in heaven. It's a command. It's not an option. If you do it on earth, then it gets stolen, it rusts, moths eat it, and so forth. Number three, 
To follow Jesus, you must reject the idol of possessions. You must reject the idol of possessions in order to follow Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that you, you have to go and sell all your possessions, okay? Please don't freak out here and do something really radical and extreme. Uh, that's not the point. I mean, clearly the problem with the rich man here was, was idolatry. And Jesus, you know, this guy thinks he's okay, and so Jesus is kind of using something rather extreme here to show his idolatry. Go and sell everything, he told him, but he doesn't, that's not a command for everybody on planet Earth. All right? I'll give you an example just so you understand what Jesus is saying here. I mean, for example, we talked earlier about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus became a Christian, and Jesus didn't demand that he go and sell everything. I mean, that, you know, him, him selling some of his stuff and giving to the poor was his idea. So wealth is not the problem, okay? Some people say that, that money is, is the root to all evil. You ever heard that? And, and, and they, they claim it's in the Bible. It's not. The Bible says something similar. The Bible says love of money is a problem. Right? For example, 1 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 6 says, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So again, notice it's the love of money that is a root to all kinds of evil. So money's not the problem. Money's not the problem. It, it's your love. Where is your heart? Okay, we have many, many idols of our hearts. That's the issue, our idolatry. And, and you might be saying, but hey, I don't love money. I don't love money. It, it's not an idol to me. Well, really? Again, I think you need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to behold wonderful things from His Word. Uh, often our actions prove that we are deceiving ourselves. How we spend our time and our money, look, look closely at that. It often reveals where our idols are. And so Christ demands to be first in our life, but is He? Is He really first in your life? So when God blesses you financially, which He has blessed all of us financially, he gives us an opportunity with what he's blessed us with then to minister to other people who are less fortunate than us. Number four, fourth application, last one I want you to think about here is live for the glory of God, not yourself. Live for the glory of God. Do you strive for the things of this world or the things of God? Do you strive for the things of this world or... The glory of God, spreading His fame and His name amongst the nations and your family and workmates. And so the answer to this question is going to determine your destiny. The key here is your motivation. The key is your priorities. What motivates you? What are your priorities? Are they earthly or are they heavenly? Our primary reason for serving the Lord should not be for reward. You shouldn't be thinking, you know, hey, uh, I'm going to give up this house because I want, you know, I'd really like about a thousand other houses. Now, that's not the point. <laughs> that is not the point. You, you, don't, you don't give up one house or, or your brother or whatever so you can, you know, have so much more. It, it, I mean, that is the outcome, of course. 
if your motives are right and your priorities are right, you're doing it for the right reason. However, Jesus wants us to know as we do that, that God will indeed reward us if we serve him. Now beware, it is easy to fall into the trap that Peter did here. Peter asked, hey, what's in it for us? <laughs> you, ever, you ever done that? Oh, we, we are so easily prone to do that, aren't we? What's in it for me? You know, we want to know, we wanna, if, if we've got to give up something, we want to know what's in it for us. I mean, at, at the moment I'm trying this gluten-free kick, for example. And if you've ever tried any gluten-free kick, you know, it's a, it really is a pain in the neck. Well, for me, it literally is a pain in the neck, right? If I take gluten, my headaches are worse, right? So I'm thinking, okay, I, I got I to give up all this yummy stuff. I mean, my children are constantly baking cookies and cakes, and, you know, I can't go to bakeries anymore. I can't go to fast food restaurants anymore. I can't have a young, yummy hamburger, right? It's amazing. Gluten's in almost everything. And so I'm thinking, is it really worth it to give up gluten what am I gaining? i got to miss out on chocolate chip cookies. Oh. <laughs> what am I gaining? Oh, my headaches are far better than they used to be. And if you have headaches like I do every day, and sometimes they're pretty bad, and I can't even hardly think, and I just want to be really, really grumpy, it's worth it. It's worth it. You might be like that. I mean, what's in it for me? I mean, that's what Peter's asking. Well, that question shows a self-interest, a self-interest, doesn't it? You know, it's, it's not God's interest. It's not, you know, you know, Jesus, it, it wasn't Jesus, hey, we're, we, we want to give up everything. And, and so, hey, what can we do for you? If we give this up, you know, we want to know what we're going to be able to do for you. No, it's not, you know, how are we going to glorify you? It's, what's in it for us? Well, as you think about that, of course, we don't want to just serve our self-interest. We want to serve God's interest. But at the same time here, Jesus wants us to know that God's going to reward us for our sacrifices. God's going to reward us for our suffering in this life. And so, my friend, don't live for yourself. Live for God's interest. Live for the glory of God. Live to spread His fame. And if you do, you're going to obtain eternal life in heaven with God. The outcome is going to be far worth it.